think it is also about the fact that in terms of power structures, artists want to, as much as they can, remove mechanisms that hinder their capacity for creative freedom. Hello and welcome to the Art Guide Australia podcast with Tiani Mikus. This episode is the second in a short series centred on the ideas of inflation and conflation, linking with a Turing exhibition also titled Conflated. Whether metaphorical or material, the show explores how ideas of inflation and deflation can be taken in creative, environmental and political ways. And one of the 11 artists in the show is David Cross, who I chat to in this episode. David has a truly expansive practice. As well as being an artist, he's a curator, academic, art professor, writer and musician. For his art practice in particular, he's known for creating works that use inflatables in performative ways, looking at dualities such as protection and precarity and the interrelationships between people. David and I chat about how he became interested in inflatables, what he's showing for Conflated, and his aspiration to create works that are at once playful without being contrived. And as someone who has great experience in art schools, we talk about art school models and the push and pull between experimentation and the precarity and professionalism of the art world. And before we get started, a kind thank you to our sponsor for this series, Nets Victoria, who are nationally touring Conflated, assisted by the Australian Government's Visions of Australia program and the Victorian Government through Creative Victoria. I thought we could start by talking about inflatables because although you work across multiple mediums like performance, installation, sculpture, public art and video, you also use inflatables to talk about the idea of interpersonal exchange. And I really want to talk about that social part of your practice, but I'm curious just how you first even became interested in using inflatables in your work. Yeah, it's an interesting one. I I came across inflatables in a sense through an accident that I was working in sort of participatory uh, installation practices and I was working with largely quite big wooden structures and I was I think I was in a show in Sydney and I had to drink it to Melbourne and then I had to go somewhere else and it was just a massive drag. I was just thinking, okay, the idea is <laughs> it's fine to have these objects and structures but the logistics of actually being able to move them around and show them is really tricky. And someone just happened to mention to me, have you ever tried or thought about inflatables? And it was like that kind of light bulb moment of, oh, wow, I hadn't actually. Mm. Um, I was living in New Zealand at the time in Wellington and um, pulling out the New Zealand version of the Yellow Pages discovered that one of the world's leading inflatable manufacturers just happened to be based in a little, ta- little town called Levin, about an hour and a half north of Wellington. So I called them up. And the guy that ran it was the mayor of Horofenua. And I, I said to him, look, I'm interested in making some bespoke inflatable artworks. And he said, look, we don't usually do that. We make um, milk linings for the dairy industry, but by all means come up. And push comes to shove. I had a 15-year relationship where they made all of my rather complex uh, inflatable structures from that point on. So it was an amazing coincidence, but that largely is how I came into it, that they were there. And the idea of being able to transport something in a reasonably straightforward way, especially when you're dealing with architectures of scale. And some of the works that I've produced have been huge 
basketball scale style um, structures. And partly it started as a logistical exercise, but I think over time, as I begin to began to see the possibilities of what inflatables could do, I really started to think through the making of artworks, not not a sort of an installation as an outcome or an endpoint, but actually as a mode of investigating potential interpersonal relations with audiences. So I've kind of flitted all over the show, maybe in the last 17 or 18 years since I've worked with inflatable. So I've worked on a very small scale, very intimate small scale, one-on-one size. And then I've also expanded it out to much larger structures. But interestingly, I think there's a consistent interrogation through all of them. And that is how might an inflatable structure serve as a conduit to creating an intimate encounter with another person, potentially somebody that you don't know. And you've talked about inflatables as well as being that intimate space as also being about a place of play or a place of freedom and how that can really entice audiences as well. But then you've also talked about how it's hard to create those conditions for unfettered play. I mean, how do you get around that with out making a work that seems completely contrived? It's a really great question. So, and there's a few different dimensions to the answer. So first of all, what I'd say about inflatables is I kind of use the description of a Hansel and Gretel effect. So one of the one of the uh, things that I think is key to them, especially as I use them, is it's a ruse, particularly in a gallery context, to draw people into an engagement. So when you see something bright and colourful and inflatable in a gallery space, it really shifts the ground rules for the idea of interaction and touch and engagement. So part of my interest in the inflatable is that childlike play sensibility. So it automatically kind of turbocharges people's desire to climb, to jump, to engage, even if it's in a gallery space. Mm. That's kind of the ingeniousness of what an inflatable does. So on, on that level, that's where I feel it can be this kind of conduit as I describe it. And at the same time, it's a lure. I think the kind of point you made, Tiani, about contrivance is really key. It's very easy to contrive a spectacle that doesn't, in fact, elicit a profound or potentially interesting engagement from the audience. You know, there's colour and scale. Mm. It's got all those things to it. So how do you invent scenarios that kind of transcend that kitsch, slightly kind of popular culture style mechanism? How do you kind of bring it back into the art realm? And for me, I think it's through the element of surprise. It's always about inserting an element into the work that at first glance you don't see or you you can't prepare yourself for. A lot of it's to do with vision. So there are things that are hidden in the work that you can't see at first glance or vision is tempered in such a way that other senses like touch and sound and smell become activated within the work. So, yeah, it's it's a very complex structure. And the other difficult thing about inflatables is you can't really change them once you've designed them. So the, the kind of complexity of, of making it as an artwork is also to build enough flex into the system so I can modulate and control the degree to which that work is tight or the degree to which it's saggy or the degree to which it it does all the things that it needs to do. And when you've got things like ledges and arms protruding through structures and slides and stuff, it's really tricky in itself to get that right. And again, trying to not fall into the trap of it just being a bouncy castle or just, you know, an inflatable structure. How can I challenge that? How can I invent ways to make that more complicated or, or more difficult for the audience perhaps? 
Yeah, I didn't, I actually didn't think about the practicality of the fact that you might be given a space, you design the inflatable, and then you have no idea how it will really manifest until you get there for install. You totally don't. And that is the terror and the excitement (laughs) of working like this. I mean, you can tweak, to a degree, you can tweak some things, but the really larger structures where it's like, say, for example, you want someone to walk along a thin ledge three metres above the ground with crash pads down below and they have to put their arm through a wall and there's an unknown performer helping them negotiate this ledge. Like the logistics of that are nuts. And if you if it doesn't work as you have it in your head, which quite often it doesn't, then the, the whole thing doesn't fly. So it, it's balancing this idea of designing it so that the scenario that's there in your mind that you've invented can actually transpire is part of the really difficult quality of making it work. And, you know, for me, it, there has to be the other kind of complex factor is it's it's not that it's just one size fits all experience where everyone has the same experience and everyone does the same thing. There's got to be, for me, a way in which there is some agency for the audience to make decisions about how quickly they move or where they move or how they negotiate the the body or the object that they're experiencing within this inflatable structure. So there's this real tension, I think, between having something that is a scenario that holds broadly but being able to particularise it and allow people to make some decisions within that work. And I think, you know, it's like mixing. It's uh, it's so much like mi- mixing in music. You know, you're fiddling with the, with the dials just to try and find that balance. And it's Mm -hmm. always tricky to to get the mix right. Yes. Yeah, it is. And something when I've been doing this series and I've just been thinking so much about inflatables and the idea of conflation and inflation and deflation, I was thinking how, and it's sort of like you said before, the first time that you ever really encounter an inflatable for so many of us would be a jumping castle when you're a kid. And there's something very you know, exciting and playful about it. But then you also kind of register that there is something very precarious and dangerous about it. Like they are these fragile structures. Are you thinking about that balance? Absolutely. And I guess that's the allure of it as a child is that it's both incredibly exciting, but at the same time, mildly terrifying. I did this work in Christchurch, which maybe perhaps illustrates what you're talking about and what my interest in. The work was called Level Playing Field. And it was a huge inflatable literally a playing field where I invented a sport for two teams to play against each other. And it took place in Christchurch in the immediate aftermath of the earthquakes. And the objective, one team was inside the structure pulling on the roof of it and another team was on the outside running across the top trying to dive through a slot to score a point. And neither team could see each other. And in a sense, the pleasure of it was you were were trying to undertake an activity where you're literally only being held in place by air and anything at any moment could happen. And that work was largely about using art as a means of conquering unstable ground and it was very much an attempt to kind of create some degree of stability or an artistic response to that idea at a period of time where Christchurch was going through like aftershocks and there was just this terrible trauma around the notion of stable ground. So again, that that work, just coming back to kind of the original question about the pleasure and the fear of inflatability, it's the slippage between those two things that I think is where the potential for something quite powerful to happen within an inflatable structure. I've often talked about how in my works I'm looking to activate a thing, an unguarded moment, if you like, where 
someone has momentarily lost sight of themselves, whether it's physically or mentally, they are in that threshold space between being in control and being out of control, being in a state of pleasure and a state of fear. There's something about the slippage in between those things that I feel is a really productive moment as an artist to potentially interrogate. And in that sense, I am really interested in in how I can find that spot, if you like, maybe it's a blind spot or a punctum, whatever you want to call it, that everyone has, whereby they aren't in a position where they're comfortable and secure and they're not ambivalent or oblivious to the potential for a transformatory experience to happen. Now, I know it sounds quite grandiose, but I have definitely spent my entire practice trying to find that spot, that point at which someone through the circumstance of the inflatable work and the scenario they're experiencing elicits or gives something of themselves that they didn't expect to give and perhaps becomes aware of something about themselves that they weren't aware of before. Mm. Do you feel like you've achieved that? Uh, I think that would be really challenging uh, to say yes. I don't know if I have. I think anecdotally you get a sense that some of the works have affected or impacted people in ways that were significant. Um, So I can only kind of recount that anecdotally and also perhaps what I see when I'm watching people engaging with the works. But I can definitely say that it's a kind of constant aspiration and I feel like I'm continually interested in trying to find the conditions by which bodies and inflatable structures can be aligned in different scenarios to enable that unguarded moment to kind of manifest. Yeah, it's a really generous aspiration too, I think. For what you're exhibiting in Conflated, could you talk through what the work will be? So it's a new project. It's called Pear, and it's a very COVID inflatable work, actually. So it was commissioned and conceived in the height of lockdown. And one thing that became readily apparent to me was making artworks that were interactive, participatory, where, you know, assorted uh, bacterial substances could be easily transmitted was not a great space to be in as an artist. So in a way, this work is my attempt to think through, well, what, what might a COVID-safe inflatable that isn't contrived look like? It's, it's a reasonably small inflatable structure. It's a pair of inflatable lounges, if you like that's separated by a wall. And in that wall, there is a hole or a slot where the arms of the two people who can't see each other can be positioned so that they can touch hands. Whether they hold hands or what have you is a decision that they can make. But effectively, it's an encounter with another person where you don't see them. And all you're experiencing is through the touch of the fingertips of that person to the other side of the wall. And Yeah, I I think I've always been interested as an artist in haptic knowledge and what we learn from touch. I've made numerous works where, you know, the the encounter with somebody is is not through vision, but it is through some kind of physical touch, Um, me holding people's feet in space, potentially um, before they drop off an inflatable tower. So this works in, in a sense, a continuation of that. It's like, what, what, kind of structure might I be able to construct that enables a dialogue that isn't an oral dialogue to be able to take place? And both the participants, and it's it's an installation work largely, so it's not like a performance, but for anyone that wants to activate it, their engagement with, with one another is literally through the fingertips to see what kind of communication, what kind of energies, what kind of ambiences perhaps are going to be transmitted in that space. 
It's really interesting to me that you are preferring these more haptic ways of encountering art through touch or smell, for example, rather than through the eye. And it's even more interesting to me because when you look at all the innovations in 20th century art, they all really ingrained looking as the main way that we encounter art. Yeah, I think that maybe I've got a couple of reasons for the the visual or the kind of attempt to kind of temper vision as the dominant sense. One of them is that I have problematic eyes myself and that I've got a couple of chronic eye conditions. I don't have any tear ducts and I have four rows of eyelashes instead of two and I've had a lot of challenges with my eyes through my life. So I approach art from the perspective that vision is not something I take for granted or can take for granted. And I think that there are many people, particularly visually impaired, uh, who, again, are very interested in art practices but don't want to be marginalised or diminished in their capacity to experience art simply because of the visual element. So in part, my interest in, in the haptic is from my own experience of struggling with visual information as the only or most dominant sensory capacity. And it's not to say that vision isn't there. Vision is absolutely a fundamental feature. The works are colourful. It is about negotiating spaces into that. You, you do need a kind of visual dexterity. But it's also about trying to elevate senses that we just don't privilege enough to my mind in, in visual arts practice, and that is touch and sound and smell, you know, and and the important information and complexity that can be manifest through activating those senses. Mm. Did you grow up interested in the arts? Uh, yeah, I did. <laughs> I did. I did. Um, I studied art school, but I trained as an art historian, not as an artist. So I did a master's in an undergraduate degree in art history and then a master's in art history. And it was only when I went back and did a PhD uh, in 2002 that I actually ended up finally doing an artistic practice-based qualification. Mm. So yeah, I've, I've always engaged in that space, but I think I've probably been a bit of a multimodal practitioner as well. I have a writing practice, I have a curatorial practice, and I'm a teacher as well. So I'm kind of operating across a range of strata and a musician. So because I have these different identifications, things that I do, then it definitely impacts the way I think I approach making and thinking about art. Yeah, that's a lot. Do you see them all as separate practices or do you, do you see them working together? I think sometimes it's easier to separate things out. It, it's interesting. We live in a world where it's it's supposed to be the case that, ah, you know, pandisciplinary and you can be a writer and a curator and you can be everything and do all these different roles. But to some degree, it, there are still challenges with where you're positioned as a creative practitioner. People like to say you're an artist or a, a writer or a curator or whatever. There's still a bit of to a degree, a kind of compartmentalization that goes on. So maybe for those reasons, I have to negotiate fairly carefully what what roles I take on and how I identify. But I think there are definite crossovers between curation, writing, and making work. But yeah, maybe it's just easier for me to separate it out too, because my, my curatorial work is really in public art and curating temporary public art projects, and they're reasonably distinct from the artwork that I make as an artist, perhaps just because it's a different set of interests and I really need to be, to be doing both things, but not often do they cross over. Yeah, and it's incredible because when someone like yourself has so many roles, it also makes me think about the precarity of the arts and how people often have to juggle many roles at once. Do you feel having many roles is just a part of the practicalities of being in the arts or is it more the joy of having so many roles? 
It's a really good question, and I agree with the premise of the question. I think it's true that the multiplicity is often a survival mechanism for many artists. I think maybe less so for me because I've always been an academic and, you know, for maybe the last, I don't know, 25 years I've been a full-time academic. So the precarity of financial position has never been there for me as it is for many practitioners. So I think I'm very privileged in being able to make decisions about what what I want to do and how I want to do it, whether it's through writing. I mean, there are some constrictions in academia, definitely. I think it's difficult to be an artist if you aren't writing, you have to write grants and bring external income. And so the, I, the very idea of what it is to be an artist academic is really complex. Uh, and I think, yeah, that perhaps informs to some degree the necessity of having a writing practice and publishing outcomes, writing grants to get external income, all of that kind of stuff. So, yeah, but I think more broadly, uh, I think it is true that in Australia in particular, where our, the ecology of being an artist has a degree of precarity largely through lack of financial security, I think it has led people to kind of take on different roles. But having said that as well, I do feel that artists are extremely well-placed to undertake certain kinds of roles that perhaps in the past they may not have seen as being open to them in the same way. So, for example, you know, artist curators and artist writers, there's something about the critical perspective that artists bring to the plate that I think is really phenomenal and important. So, in that sense, yeah, I feel that the decisions to work across media, it's not just about economic precarity. I think it is also about the fact that in terms of power structures, artists want to, as much as they can, remove mechanisms that hinder their capacity for creative freedom. And sometimes curators as gatekeepers or writers as gatekeepers simply make it more difficult to progress as a practitioner. So it makes perfect sense to go, well, you know, let's let's get rid of the middle person here and let's take on these roles. And in that sense, I think that's really fantastic because it is certainly the case that the institutionalisation of art does make it very competitive uh, and there are hierarchies and there are power inequities. And so by taking on the role of curator or writer or arts administrator, producer, whatever, you know, it is in a sense giving yourself greater agency to make decisions over your creative practice. When talking about that institutionalization of art, you're someone who's a teacher at an art school and you likely have many young students and art school is meant to be this time of experimentation and play. How do you approach that as a teacher trying to foster that experimentation while also acknowledging the realities of post-art school life and entering that institution of art? Oh, it's a great question, Tiani, and I think anyone who teaches within a university art school environment is constantly wrestling with a whole range of imperatives as to what to teach, how to prepare artists for, for moving into an industry that is complex and always changing, how do you build the resilience required to engage in an art practice over a long period of time, because clearly it's a marathon, not a sprint, as we often tell students. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and yeah, I think it's it's complex and it's shifted and it changes. You know, I think that art schools have become more complex places. I've been teaching them since the early 90s and, you know, I think the number of hours that they've had in class has been reduced, cost of the study has been increased, there's been a greater onus on things like rubrics and marks and how all that process operates. And, you know, in a sense, I was talking about the instrumentalization of art, the instrumentalization of academia in terms of creative practice is also really profound. So we're having to mediate all the time between 
skills, learning skills, learning criticality, uh, having the courage to take risks and to, to be able to create the conditions within a university by which they can take risks, that is a super tricky one. I think we're moving ever ever more dangerously towards risk aversion more broadly in our world and I think universities are not immune from that. So how do we as academics create spaces for our students to be able to take risks to, to, to exit their, their comfort zones and find new ways of communicating and operating at a time when universities are obviously very cautious and reluctant to be taking risks that they don't feel sits within their more broader remit. So I feel that's, that's a very live and complex conversation, particularly if you're working in performance or in public art practices. These are really chewy and difficult territories and yeah, I think we are constantly having to mediate between an institution that wants to grow, wants to expand its capacity, wants to build a vibrancy for the markets for creative arts, but at the same time is challenged by the, you know, the, the radical uh, practices that are often emanating from art schools. And, I mean, you've talked and you've interviewed people about art school models. What would you like to see change in Australian art school models? Mm, well, that is a, yeah, it's a complex question to ask. I mean, to be really clear, art schools are, and universities are only recent bedfellows. So the history of art schools has been as independent institutions, and some of them still are. It was really only in the 80s, maybe a little bit before then, that universities and art schools kind of amalgamated and they came out of TAFEs and they came out of technical colleges like Preston Technical College, um, Paran, you know. So, you know, a lot of the most interesting art programs and interesting teachers and students emanated from non-university backgrounds. And mm. universities have a very particular remit and a set of responsibilities and they don't always align with what art is about and, and the kind of risk and radicality, art for its own sake, you know, the the obsession around assessment tasks and what they look like and grades and scholarships. You know, there's a whole bunch of stuff that sits in there. And I think anyone working in art schools is always asking themselves the question, how do we create a space of freedom, of risk, that is safe for people to experiment with, that is not elitist or exclusionary? You know, these are very tricky, complex questions. You know, how do you negotiate a, a kind of space of gender politics, racial politics, celebrations of difference, and at the same time allow for radical, free-based experimentation? There's constant tensions existing between individual rights and group rights. So, yeah, I mean, you know, I'm just largely trying to think this through in my own head. You know, it's probably about trying to, as much as possible, think about what 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 are the conditions by which people are able to thrive and to build resilient creative practices? Like, what does that look like? And what kind of curriculum needs to sit around that that enables them to do that? Mm, yeah, that's been a really incredible thought process to kind of be talked through. And as you were speaking, it just made me think that you're also a curator and a commissioner of public art, and it must be processes like that of thinking, you know, about how a public art piece is, of course, going to sit in a community of so many various people. And then you've also got, you know, stakeholders who are commissioning the piece, and then you also have the artist and staying true to their vision. How do you navigate all of that when you're trying to to create a piece of public art? There's so many different 
factors that diminish, potentially diminish public art outcomes. And again, I'm not saying anything radically new in that space. There's many examples of public art that look like they were made by committee uh, and unfortunately have been fatally mm. compromised because so many different people had a say on whether it was valuable or useful or it needed to be compromised in this way or that. So, yeah, I think the, the challenge with public art is to just not allow an incredibly exciting vision, a complex vision that an artist has brought to the plate to be watered down by a whole raft of compromises. And so, and those compromises might be all sorts of things, whether they're about risk or compliance or cost or all sorts of stuff. You know, there are many things you can uh, try and control and there are things that you can't control. So I still really believe passionately that the idea of experiencing something in the public realm that can be transformatory, that can be powerful, speaks to place and people and community in really amazing ways, you know, and, and activates the local community to kind of consider uh, and experience an art, artistic response to their place in, in a really interesting and powerful way. I still value that enormously. But to be honest, it's just it gets harder and harder to make these kinds of projects because it's just difficult to fund them and then it's difficult to be able to ensure that, that, that you know, really beautiful, pure kind of, if I can use that description, idea that's manifest isn't watered down by constraints and there are so many constraints. And, you know, you can't make art to please everybody. You never will. And I think that's also a challenge that I think commissioning agencies are always having to balance out the degree to which a work can take risks and can push the public or coax them to think about things in a different way versus reinforcing what they know. And I think public art, when it's really good, doesn't reinforce what we know. It it, it opens up new ways of thinking and operating. So, yeah, I think um, lots of people working in the way that I do and, I, and, you know, locally and internationally, they're all addressing the same challenges. Yeah, that, <laughs> I don't know. It's, it's a difficult game to keep operating in, but for those mm. that do, it's also rewarding when you can get it right. Yeah, there was something else you've talked about in a previous interview in relation to this, and you talked about how there's been a gradual shift in the last 10 years or so that public art practice used to centre around the idea of creating art for an audience, but now it's much more around the idea of community engagement, and community engagement is actually a part of the work. And I thought that was a really fascinating shift that I just hadn't considered and I was wondering if you could talk through the difference between that and how that changes the commissioning process. Yeah, I think effectively we've moved away from a model, which, again, I was probably partly complicit in maybe 15 years ago, which which was largely indifferent to the, the complexity of place and community and saw public art as something that could be transferable pretty much anywhere. So you'd fly in artists from around the world, they'd turn up, they'd have a sniff around and they'd knock something out and then they'd disappear again. And, you know, it was this, this kind of approach as sort of art, the artist as a sort of globally mobile citizen. And what was great is that it created this great frisson of energy as artists were zipping around everywhere. But the what was lost in this was a really profound engagement with place with community, with building a respect for and an engagement with local communities, particularly Indigenous communities, that wasn't prioritised in a way now that we would look back and question. So I think 
In a sense, COVID has been a shifter as well, as we've become much more focused on ideas of locality. And, you know, when we were constricted to our five kilometre walks, you know, you become intimately connected to your landscape, to the animals, the flora and fauna, and the people that inhabit that space. And in a sense, it's a great metaphor for the idea that we often exclude the value of the local in, in terms of thinking about, you know, international stardom or international glamour, that Venice Biennale or Documenter or Sculpture Project Monster are somehow more important cultural frames than the frames that we might produce locally. And so I think the shift is it's got many different factors to it. Many of them are pol- political and a much greater uh, ethical and moral interest in what it con- what constitutes engagement, um, the the role that communities can play in the work rather than being passive bystanders. There's a much greater interest in communities directly engaging with and shaping and yeah having agency in the making of works. I think artists' role in making those projects has shifted to become much more collaborative. And in that sense, I think that's really powerful and important. I think the trick is to continue to find that balance so that the there is a kind of mediation perhaps between the community's role in shaping and telling stories and, and engaging with local conditions and an artist's ability to offer new perspectives, new approaches to those communities. I think there's a, a, a really powerful tension, a really productive one that's in that space. So that's kind of how I would perhaps describe the shift And, yeah, I mean, things are lost and things are gained in that process. And that was David Cross for this latest podcast episode, supported by Nets Victoria. Listen back to the first episode with Zoe Baston and stay tuned for one more conversation. You can subscribe to the Art Guide podcast on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And don't forget to rate the show as it helps people find us. Or otherwise, listen at Art Guide Online, where you can also keep up to date with art-related features and interviews from across the country. 